0: Welcome to Magic and Mayhem, Discover the Secrets to Creating Magnificent Books for Kids and Teens. Magic and Mayhem is a free podcast and ebook series brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres in writing courses. If you're interested in writing for kids and teens, join us on a journey that's set to inspire and enhance your own writing skills. By now, you've heard from picture book authors, chapter book authors, middle grade authors, and young adult authors. So now we're going to hear from publishers of children's and young adult fiction. You can download your free ebook, Magic and Mayhem, at magicandmayhem.com.au, which has a great overview and is a great resource with tips and techniques from all of the authors and publishers featured in this podcast series. So download your free ebook at magicandmayhem.com.au. My name's Valerie Ku, I'm founder of the Australian Writers Centre. And today we're talking to Marissa Pintado. Marissa is an experienced publisher of compelling, commercially successful, and award-winning young adult fiction for Hardy Grant Egmont in Melbourne. She also launched and manages the Ampersand Prize for debut novelists. Since Marissa spoke to Alison Tate from the Australian Writers' Centre. She has published a number of successful novels, including A Compelling Middle Grade Mystery, The Underground Orchard by Matt Larkin in 2018, and the brilliant 2018 Reading's Young Adult Book Prize-winning rom-com Amelia Westlake by Erin Goff. When Alison spoke to her, she had some great advice for budding writers who wanted to get their foot in the door. So listen up.
1: Marisa Pintado is the publisher of children's and YA fiction at Hardy Grant Egmont in Melbourne. In 2011, she launched the Ampersand Prize, which is Hardy Grant Egmont's annual search for YA and middle grade manuscripts from unpublished writers. And throughout her editorial career, she has worked closely with a variety of emerging, commercially successful, and award winning authors. Welcome to the program, Marisa.
2: Thank you. So exciting to talk to you.
1: All right. So let's start way back at the beginning. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be in publishing in the first place.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So my background is basically only in editorial. You can come to being a publisher lots of different ways, through marketing, through publicity. Um, But I have worked in editorial for about the last decade, mostly in Melbourne, but with a short stint. In London and it's not 100% um, common for editors in Australian publishing to start out acquiring the way it is in the US but I was always drawn to commissioning because I loved the process of working with writers to get as close as possible to their best manuscript um, and I was able I was lucky enough to be working at Hardy Grant Egmont uh, while we were publishing the Zach Power and Go Girl series which used lots of different writers um, either writing under a pseudonym or writing under their own names, but working to a formula uh, to kind of practice my commissioning as a junior commissioning editor, um, which was really fantastic. So it allowed me to kind of hone my process of working with authors to get the very best out of them um, in an environment where we had reasonably formulaic um, stories to produce, but but uh, which um, which kind of gave authors the ability to be really creative within specific kind of constraints. Um, yeah.
1: So when you're working on a series like that, when you've got like a Zach Power or something, as you say, you have a whole range of different authors who are working, you know, to to essentially a, a formula with set characters, is there like a level of um, – because I'm just thinking about magazine writing. So when you write as, mm. a, as a freelance writer for a magazine, you've got to write – you know, obviously with your own voice, etc. cetera, but you also have to fit within the voice of the magazine, um, which is a skill in itself. So are your authors, you know, for a series like that, are they, you know, because you, you kind of want a consistency, don't you, of voice across a series like that as though it's um, so when kids are reading it, it's not like, oh, wait a minute, this is not like the last Zach Power that I read. So how do you work with authors to kind of get that happening?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that is really the key thing, is getting that consistency of voice. Um, And Zest Power is a good example because all of the writers wrote under a pseudonym, H.I. Larry, um, and there were very strict rules in that series because it was published at a time when, uh, you know, the industry was a bit obsessed with the idea of the reluctant reader. Mm. Um, And it was really a series that was um, targeting reluctant readers who – One of the excitement and high-octane adventure of a series like Alex Ryder that didn't necessarily have the reading ability. So we created lots of rules around that series to make it as accessible as possible to them and so that writers from anywhere, really, um, if they read a couple of Zach Powers, they would very quickly get a sense of the voice and the rules. And the rules are things like the manuscripts always have to be 7,000 words. There are 10 chapters. Every chapter, um, you know, Zach has a new gadget that he deploys in some fantastic and exciting but easy-to-read um kind of way um and so that I think as a um as an emerging kind of commissioning editor was really interesting because it meant I could kind of rely on the uh constraints of the series to sort of shepherd and guide my authors but also kind of create a space for them to be as creative as possible I mean if you've ever read a Zach Power book or any of the Zach Power books you'll know that he gets knocked out at least once in every book (laughs) Um, because every story has to take place over 24 hours and it's really difficult to use up 24 hours in only 10 chapters. Um, (laughs) But um, so, you know, and so our writers would actually get tremendously creative in those situations because you can't really use gadgets that have been used before. You can't be knocked unconscious in the same way you've been knocked unconscious before. Um, And so I think it was actually a really great experience for me as a publisher, but also for emerging writers, kind of learning how to write to a brief and learning how to write to a particular voice.
1: Did those um, – so some of those writers that you worked with on that series, I'm, I'm really – I'm quite interested in this just simply for the fact that I, like, mm. I must have read about 8 billion Zach Powers because I have two boys. Oh, boy. So we have done all of the various permutations of Zach easy readers all the way through the whole bit. Um, mm. it, it was, so you, you worked with sort of newer, newer authors on that on that series, um, is yeah. it difficult then for them to go, because I think one of the most difficult things, and you would probably agree with me on this, um, one of the most difficult things for emerging authors is just that ability to find your own voice and to find your, mm. um, you know, your way of telling a story and to create, I guess, a, a voice that it becomes identifiable to a group of readers who want to follow that voice. Um, did Was was that then difficult for those emerging authors? Like if they were sort of like working to a very strict brief with with the Zach Power series, to then go well now i 'm going to create my own work, or oh, how do I do that is that was that difficult at all
2: that's such a good question. I suspect it's probably a question for the authors involved right no no no, that's okay, but um, I 't have a stab at answering it uh, at uh, answering it on their behalf um, i I think so we tended to work with unpublished authors yeah. um, for the Zach Power series. It was usually the first thing that we had worked with them on. And usually after one or two or three, or in the case of Chris Morphew, for example, um, 10 uh, <laughs> books, they um, they would actually start to kind of chase at the constraints of writing in the series and kind of be spurred on to writing their own thing, to write their own voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the process of publishing the Zach Powers, it it did involve a lot of very heavy editing.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so in a way, there's a natural end to every writer's involvement with the Zach Powers series. Because at a certain point, um, I thought, I think, they would get to a point where they would think, you know what? I'd really rather have ownership over my words mm. rather than rather than kind of submitting to a series that is owned by the publisher. Mm. Um, and not in a way, and not in a way that kind of meant there were hard feelings at, at any point. I don't think. I think it was a really enjoyable uh, and well remunerated um, process for everybody involved. But I actually think, in a way, it kind of gave the writers involved the confidence that they could actually produce a manuscript, a full length manuscript and work with an editor and get a sense of the editorial process, but then also give them that itch to kind of find their own voice and their own space to write their own stories. And as it happens, um, nearly every single writer I've worked with on the Zach Power series, I have I've gone on to publish or to contract to publish, um, in the kind of years since um, and some of it is you know, some of it happened immediately and other writers i have only just contracted uh, for example matt larkin who wrote a zach power called shock music which is one of my favorites he uh, and i are working on his first debut novel or first debut his debut novel which will publish next year uh, called the orchard underground which i'm really excited about um, and i don't think he would have written that book had he not written zach power
1: so it's a terrific. I mean, I can see it. You know, from my perspective, it's just a terrific opportunity mm. for emerging authors to, you know, make relationships with publishers. And how did you find yeah. them in the first place?
2: Um, actually, it's, it's sort of a funny question because I think it was the thing that made me realize I could be a commissioning editor because you find writers everywhere. Um, uh. The Matt Luck and I met at a family barbecue. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's not. He's not, a, he's not a member of my family. Um, Actually, it was a family friend's barbecue. Um, you know, he's just a lovely, intelligent man that I got talking to, and I realised this man has more than one story to tell. And actually, he's really smart and can tell a great story, and I wonder if he can write down those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of kind of practically where I find writers, um, for Zach Power, I would meet them at festivals, at conferences. People would just email me out of the blue. Often, uh, Chris Morphew, uh, who went on to publish The Phoenix Files, um, which was a pretty successful middle grade series that we put out a few years ago, he came to us through another writer, Rowan Macaulay, who we had published under the Go Girl series, which had a similar structure to Zach Power, except the writers didn't write under a pseudonym. Uh, it was a, a series of about 30 books, um, and every book told the story of a real-life girl um, uh, and sort of in a similar format to Zach Power, except there were no gadgets to high-octane adventure. It was much more about real life stories and emotional trajectories Hmm. um, and the kind of schoolyard politics of the day, which again, at the time it was published, um, the market was pretty obsessed with fairies. It is still obsessed with fairies, but it was obsessed. There wasn't really much available for kids who liked real stories about real girls. So um, anyway, that's, that's what we were uh, working on Rowan with. She was writing a a number of books for us as part of that series. And Chris uh, went to her church. And she showed him a Zach Power one day. Yeah. And he said, I reckon I can do better than that, uh, which is which is lovely. Um, and he sent us a manuscript and it was fantastic. He had instinctively got the rules that we were trying to kind of adhere to. Um, and actually working with him on that series was amazing because even though we had started out with a very kind of simple formula for Zach, you know, like I said, 7,000 words, 10 chapters, all of that, he he actually saw a kind of mythology in the world that we hadn't anticipated. Mm. And it was subtle, but it was there. And he had sort of, in the books that followed his first one with us, he managed to kind of weave in that mythology really subtly. Um, and it, actually it was with him that we published uh, the Zach Power Mega Missions, which was a four-book spin-off yep. series, and then the Zach Power Extreme Missions, which was another um, spin-off series. Wow. Um, because he was just he was so capable to sort of slip inside that world and see that it was bigger. Um, bigger than it looked.
1: Well, I just think that's really fascinating and, I, and thanks very much for talking to us about that because I know that's sort of all a bit mm. left field of what we were going to discuss but I um, I mm. just think that it's a really interesting insight and I think it's something that emerging, emerging authors probably overlook is that series fiction and the ability of, of – of that to actually you know perhaps open a door into publishing for you so thanks for that but i also know that you like you're obviously very interested in emerging and unpublished authors because you did launch the ampersand prize in 2011 which is of course a competition for debut ya and middle grade novelists can you tell us a little bit about how that works and why you why did you establish it
2: yeah, I'd be delighted to. Um, I will start out by saying that this year's Ampersand Prize is opening for submissions on the 10th of July, and it's running for um, uh, nearly three weeks. So we closed submissions, I think, on the 28th of July. Mm. I hope that's right. Um, and we're accepting manuscripts from all debut novelists of middle grade and YA fiction, as you say. Um, but why did we launch it? Um so we launched it in 2011 at a time when we were really looking to grow our YA list. We had been tremendously successful with publishing our junior fiction. Um, you know, Zach Power and Gogol were best selling series. We were selling thousands of copies every week. And my, I loved working on children's fiction, but my homeland is YA and middle grade. And I really wanted to expand our list for older readers. Mm-hmm. But it was a time when Twilight was huge. Um, and we were really only receiving manuscripts. For paranormal and dystopian uh, fiction, Mm. and it was honestly a bit frustrating because it wasn't the sort of fiction we wanted to publish. We sort of pride ourselves in looking for the gaps in the market, trying to publish what's not, what's not currently there. Um, And it got to the point where I thought, if no one's going to send me these manuscripts, I have to ask for them. Like I can't just sort of sit here waiting. You know how how can a writer? working in Wagga, for example, know what a publisher in Melbourne is kind of desperately hoping for. Mm. Um, so we decided to make really visible in public our desires. And we, the first year of the Amsterdam Prize, we asked only for YA contemporary manuscripts. Um, and we had something like 250 submissions. We had expected maybe five. Wow. Um, and yeah, we we genuinely didn't know that we were going to get anybody sending us anything. So to get 250 manuscripts was just a dream. Um, and out of that bunch, we found Melissa Keel, whose manuscript was a complete surprise. Uh, Life in Outer Space was a this hilarious, warm, romantic comedy about a movie geek um, and the not quite manic pixie dream girl that he falls in love with. And we had thought, you know, we had thought we were looking for gritty, dark YA. And so this manuscript was just like a breath of fresh air Uh, when it landed Um, and so we thought you know what we are it is right for us to ask for what we want but we should also be ready to get the things that we don't know that we want Mm. and so in the second year of the ampersand prize we threw open the doors to all genres of YA including fantasy and sci-fi and everything Um, and in the years that have followed we have since expanded it yet again to include middle grade fiction so Mm. I think last year was the first year we, we accepted middle grade fiction um, because there's a real there's a real lack of middle grade publishing in Australia at the moment. We just don't seem to do it as well or as consistently as um, you know markets like the UK and the US do. Mm. Um, particularly the US, which I think has just nailed the middle grade market um, in a way that we can that we are sort of aspiring to. Um, so yeah, I mean it's been a pretty tremendously exciting ride. Every Every year we run it. I am so amazed at the number and the quality of the manuscripts that people are working on by themselves. Um, often, you know, without the support of writers' groups. Often, just kind of in their studies and around the the edges of their um, their days. You know, around full time work and childcare and you know their daily lives. They manage to produce these really quite incredible manuscripts.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I'm I'm proud of it as a prize because we we really have something unique in Ampersand. It is a a really special platform that allows us to launch the careers of these writers who might otherwise not get published or who otherwise might not make as big a splash as they deserve. Mm. Um, you know, the the flywheel, which was the second winner of the Ambersome prize uh, by Erin Goff. She's a, a really bloody fantastic, sorry. Uh, she's a fantastic <laughs> Sydney, <laughs> Sydney based writer. Um, and it was a, a novel, a contemporary novel with a gay protagonist. Um, and, but honestly, this has ended up being quite a diverse prize we hadn't we hadn't set out with that intention but I think because we are a fairly kind of modern young team I guess we're attuned to the issues uh, kind of or the imperative facing the publishing industry around publishing own voices and and kind of the need for diversity in our publishing um, in a way that kind of goes beyond it just being a sort of marketing trend mm. um, and you know I mean I think we we loved the fly, the flywheel as soon as it came in we did have I think, a, a, sh- a short discussion early on about whether it was too similar to Life in Outer Space, just in terms of it being a funny contemporary novel. And I'm so glad that we had that conversation and then put our fears to rest because it has ended up being both quite a different book, but also like a really special book and a book that I'm really proud of because its protagonist is gay. And there's just no, there's very, there are very few books available um, by Australian publishers at the moment. I'm sure it's going to change, but um, you know, available at the moment that have gay protagonists and are written by gay authors.
1: Mm. Um,
2: I, think, I think that's really important. It's something we're looking to kind of keep expanding on.
1: Um, well, it does yeah, seem to also, the prize does seem to also get bigger and bigger every year. Like, I, I mean, I just sort of, the, the sort of hype around it and the size of the sort of splash it makes, particularly online, obviously, because that's where I seem to spend my entire life. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. do you, are you receiving, like, how many submissions are you receiving for the prize? Like, how many did you receive last year, for example?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, it goes up and down every year. And I think that's because writers, it takes a long time to write these manuscripts. And, um, you know, writers don't tend to submit the same manuscripts over and over again, they're working on something new. And that might take a couple of years to kind of come together. Mm. It hovers between 150 to 300,
3: mm.
2: usually, mm. which is actually not that many, but it does, it does kind of create a lot of Work for the reading team. So, basically, the, the process for the ampersand prize is that I lead a small team inside Hardy Grant Egmont um, with um, the editors and a few sort of select colleagues from the sales and marketing teams, um, and we basically all read together. And over uh, for, you know over about six or eight weeks, we read every single manuscript and we talk about them on a Friday. Uh, it used to be a Friday morning with coffee these days it's more likely to be a Friday afternoon with a beer um, <laughs> because it's, it's such an enjoyable thing to do to be like to get excited about things you know last year's winner brin williams um she's written this fantastic middle grade fantasy that I'm so excited to publish next year and that was that was a kind of a hit from the beginning, you know like somebody was reading it on a Friday and kind of popped up their head and said this is really good, you guys. And from there, it just kind of spread like wildfire. And Mm. I mean, that's the thing that I love about Anthosand is just that we just get so excited when we find that special manuscript that we know we want to work really closely with the author on and that we really want to kind of get out there in big numbers and really kind of launch the career of this new person. Um, It's awesome. It's why we all got into publishing in the first place.
1: Um, And I think... Sorry, keep going.
2: Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think Heidi Grant Egmont is in... A really unique position. I don't know that I don't know that a larger publisher could run the prize the way we do, and I don't know that a smaller publisher could do either. We're one of the the few kind of mid-sized publishers in Australia, um, and I think that gives us a particular strength. It means that we are kind of agile and small enough to work really closely with these debut authors who do need who do need I think a special level of attention because they're so new to the industry and they're new to the process, and we like to make sure they have all of the editorial support they need to get the very best possible chance at launch. Um, But we're also kind of big and successful enough with a lot of fantastic books under our belt, a lot of fantastic series that we're able to really convincingly launch their careers. Um, You know, like Melissa Keel is one of the best-selling Australian contemporary YA authors in this country, which is amazing. Um, You know, this is a girl who's come from nowhere, a woman who's come from nowhere. Um, You know, she's an overnight sensation, 10 years in the making, all of that sort of stuff.
1: So how much of a manuscript are you reading before you decide whether it's worth pursuing? Like you're all sitting there with your beers, which I'm kind of sad that I'm not <laughs> with you just quietly because it sounds like a really great way to spend an afternoon.
2: It's so fun. Yeah, um, yeah I promise you we don't get drunk. There's only one beer <laughs> per person and some of us don't drink at all. So uh,
1: I don't know. It's know like it, it gives you a whole new perspective on a, on a manuscript, doesn't it, yeah. when you've had a couple of beers? No,
2: no. I, um, it's a lot of fun how much do we read? Um, look, it really depends on the manuscript. I always aim to read a whole manuscript, even if I know halfway through that it's not for us, um, because I feel like if there's something in there that I can, you know, take and sort of take away to give to the author as, as feedback to kind of help them on their journey towards finding another publisher, then I will do that. But wow. the, the, the thing about being a kind of mid sized publisher with a very specific publishing brief, you know, our our brief. In a nutshell, at the, on the fiction, in the fiction team is to look for junior fiction series and middle grade and YA uh, that will sell to a mainstream commercial audience. Mm. Um, and so the thing about having such a specific brief is that you can often tell from the first kind of fifty or hundred pages whether something fits with that. If mm. we, you know, there are times during ampersand where um, we will begin reading a manuscript and realize very quickly that a it is far too literary to appeal to an Australian YA audience. That It it is too explicit that there are sex scenes that that we that are honestly read more like something you would you would think would be more appropriate for an adult audience, Mm. Um, or you know you can tell from I think the first hundred pages whether the author is is really ready to engage with an editor uh, whether the quality of the writing is there, and so in special cases we won't read. past 100 pages mm-hmm. but we do really try to give the writer the benefit of the doubt and often you know there are manuscripts that don't really find their voice until 50 pages in yeah um but the other thing about writing for children is that you know kids are the harshest critics mm-hmm. um they just won't keep reading if it doesn't appeal to them and same with teenagers is the um you know their bull bull crap factor is is uh, sorry bull crap reader is really strong they mm-hmm. can tell straight away if something's not going to be for them and so we feel like we've got kids on our side. We have a clear sense of what we're trying to publish. Um, and, you know, if in the first 50 or 100 pages the author is, hasn't convinced us on those fronts, then that, that's maybe when we stop reading. But as I said, we do try. <laughs> we do try to keep going, um,
1: so, particularly if we're interested anyway, which can happen because we're all passionate readers. Yes. Yes, yes. And that is the thing too. It's like, well, what's going to happen here? Is this going to like where – because as you say, like sometimes it does, particularly with a, a debut uh, manuscript, you know, it can sometimes take you 50 pages to to get to where you actually probably should have started the book, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, you know, the, the number of times I've read a prologue and thought, oh, no, not another prologue. And sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes the manuscript actually does need a prologue. But more mm. often than not, I think the writer is – writing into the story to find the beginning mm, okay. um and so sometimes you just have to like let them do that
1: so is the ampersand prize the best way for a new author to catch your eye or is there like also a normal submissions process for hardy grant yeah, sure.
3: yeah. uh the
2: answer is yes to both questions so okay. for middle grade and ya we we tend to close submissions um Around the time of, in the lead up to and around the time of the Ampersand Prize, Mm -hmm. because we want people to be funneling their manuscripts through that prize. Mm -hmm. Um, But for junior fiction series and picture books, we publish beautiful literary award winning picture books under our imprint, Little Hair. Um, There are submission guidelines on our website, and we're pretty specific about what we're looking for, because with junior fiction in particular, um, there are all kinds of things that we like to do to. to basically stand out in the market. So, for example, we only do series for junior fiction readers, which is kind of roughly ages four to eight. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't do standalone chapter books for that readership for the simple reason that it's really difficult to get them to stand out on shelves. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So Mm -hmm. the normal submissions process, you have all the guidelines on your website. We had a question last Mm -hmm. uh, a little while ago um, from from a, a sort of like a potential picture book author and mm. she was saying that um you know often uh, publishers are closed for picture book submissions and um is that would that be the case with you guys do you sort of like do you close you do you close your books or close your doors for a while once you have a massive pile of manuscripts that you need to get through and then reopen them at another time or um you know why why would uh, publishers close for picture book submissions I guess is my question
2: hmm. yeah that's a really good question uh the answer is yes we do periodically close we've actually just reopened our doors for picture book um submissions Mm -hmm. and i think i think the reason is really about managing volume uh i mean even when publishers are closed to submissions we still get submitted all the time um Mm -hmm. people will still send us their projects or you'll meet interesting people at festivals or conferences and you know ask them to send you their manuscript so there are always ways around those submission guidelines if you are lucky or you have a contact or you're just kind of Bold, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it's really about volume. I mean, you can't imagine how many picture book manuscripts get sent through the doors of Little Hair yeah. every year. There's yeah. just, there's so many. And they're short, but every, you know, the, the picture book publisher there, Margretta Lemond, has the most incredible brain. And it takes a huge amount of time and energy for her to basically birth a picture book, to yeah. t- sort of take it from a manuscript to a final printed book. It's a really, like, labour-intensive, time-intensive cost-intensive process. Um, And so she might only publish 15 to 20 picture books a year
3: Mm.
2: um, but receive, you know, a thousand manuscripts that Mm. she has to work through. Um, So I think that would be the reason why publishers sometimes close their doors, just to kind of give the manuscripts that they already have a fair go in their inbox. Um, to sort of make it to publication.
1: I'm so glad you said that because that's pretty much what Val and I said at the time Mm. that we got asked the question, so I'm feeling much better. Um, Okay, so where do you think most authors or, you know, aspiring authors go wrong with their submissions? Is it not reading the guidelines? Is that the first problem?
2: Yeah, I was going to say that's the easy answer. Yeah. Um, it's just not knowing what we're about. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, if if people are publishing kind of explicit sex scenes on the first page of their man- of their middle grade novel, I think it's pretty clear they haven't done the research. But usually it's not as uh, straightforward as that. I think the, the sort of the, the real answer is the lack of finesse um, and the lack of polish with a manuscript where, um, you know, the number one reason we say no to something uh, or the number one joint reason um, is that, the writing isn't good enough, or the ideas aren't good enough, okay. and you can have writing that's not polished enough, but the ideas are really good, or the reverse. Um, and for us, we need both to be as kind of developed, fully developed as possible before we can even begin to think about falling in love with something.
1: So, how much, like, how much work, like, I, I get what you're saying with that too, but how much work mm-hmm. are you willing to actually do with? you know, with a new author, with a debut author. Like if if you really fall in love with the idea and you can see some promise in mm. the writing, will you work with that or will you send it back and say, you need to polish this and send it, you know, and try again? Like what what how much work yeah. will you do from the start?
2: Um I think it really depends on the manuscript, which is such a, such a cheap way of answering that question, but I I will say, I know that I am definitely sitting on the fence with that one. I will say that you never really know at the beginning of the process as a publisher, how much work a manuscript is going to take. You can think, you can start out thinking that it's simply a matter of tweaking this character there and, you know, finessing that plot line there, but, but you just, you never really know until you get going on the editorial relationship, particularly with emerging writers who haven't been through the editorial process before, um, and even if they're, you know, they have an exceptional talent uh, for putting together sentences, you really don't know how they're going to engage with your feedback and um, put it into practice. So mm. um, in terms of how much time we'll spend with somebody, I guess as long as it takes to get it right. Wow. You know the, the most recent YA winner of the Ampersand Prize, uh, Callie Black, whose novel In the Dark Spaces is publishing this August. It's a it's a real departure for the Ampersand Prize because it's a, a sci-fi thriller, um, and it's so good. And the voice just hooked me from the first page. It's such a clear and spectacular voice that um, I knew the moment I read it that we had to publish it. Um, which which always makes your job really easy as a judge of the Ampersand Prize, honestly, because. If you know it from the beginning, then um, then that usually stands you in good stead. So Callie was completely up for the process of um, of redrafting and redrafting until the manuscript was as good as it could possibly be. But but honestly, I think if we if she and I had known at the beginning of the process that it was going to be rounds of of really kind of intensive feedback, um, I'm not sure if we would have done that together. But I think that's the beautiful thing about that leap of faith with a new writer. Is that you think to yourself? I bet we can make this manuscript really fantastic if we work on it together, um, and and so you kind of do it, and um, and yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was hard for Kelly for lots of different reasons. Uh, her house burned down in the middle of working on the final draft. Um, it's not I know it's um, she's had the most the most awful year, um, as well as working on this manuscript that was um, you know almost too clever for her. By half, it was the, you know exactly um, uh, what you were saying. Before I was in about uh, literally writing your character into a hole, um, oh, yes, and sort of figuring out how to get them out. It was it was the exact same thing. She had sort of created a world and a character, uh, you know, a cast really um, of characters that was so fantastic and so um, compelling and complex that it took us a really long time to figure out how we were going to bring it all home, but. <sighs> But we were willing to support her the whole way and I'm really excited about that book. I think she's done just such a tremendous job on it.
1: Fantastic. So do you, uh, like outside of the ampersand prize, because that's, that's obviously a slightly mm. different set of circumstances, but do you take a, an author's platform or profile into consideration when you're deciding whether to publish a book?
2: We do to an extent. I think it's definitely a bonus for us if we can see that an author is promotable and able to talk to students and, um, you know, at writers' festivals, if they present well, then, of course, that's a bonus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having said that, we have also acquired manuscripts from authors who have zero online presence. So we're publishing a new series this August called The Witching Hours from a guy called Jack Henslight, who's a creative writing graduate, really smart, awesome guy. It's a horror series. I'm so excited about publishing it. And he doesn't – he didn't even have an Instagram – before um, we signed him up, he didn't have a Twitter. He was hardly on Facebook. He didn't have a website. He had nothing. But the manuscript was so good that it didn't matter. We um, we just really wanted to work with him. And you know, as a result of our um, as a, of our kind of working together, he's set up his Instagram. He's set up his Twitter. Uh, um, by the time the book launches, he will have that profile. Um, yeah. But for us, it's definitely something that we we think we can work with authors on if we feel it's important for their profile. Um, and you know, sometimes it's not. There are particular kinds of publishing where being on Twitter is actually not not as important as as you'd think. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what those books
1: might be, but okay.
2: um, yeah.
1: So, but you have worked. With, fiction, I guess. You have worked with him to actually get that to get that going. You know, in the sense that so, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Oh, that's great. Yeah, in fact,
2: the annoying thing is that his Instagram is better than anyone's so like he sort of <laughs> nailed it it's really good so maybe we should all have a team of publicists and and marketing managers kind of helping us shouldn't we? Craft Wouldn't our that be lovely? I
1: would love that yeah
3: I think so
1: all right so do you do you attend a lot of sort of conferences and festivals as a publisher because I know that that you know being um pitching to publishers at festivals and conferences can be a great way for people to you know break through as far as you know getting their manuscript published so are you at a lot of those things or you know is your does your team attend
3: uh,
2: yeah, so I, um, I try to attend as many as I possibly can. Um, they do take up time, um, because often I am going as a, a pitching publisher, so I will have kind of 10 or 15 or 20 meetings with authors whose first 10 pages I've read, and then we have a 15 minute meeting to talk about, you know, what's happening with their manuscript, where it could improve, what's really great about it, and, you know, I'm an introvert, so those, those meetings and those kind of, um, attendances, they take a lot of energy to recover from, but I also feel like they're really worth it because otherwise you don't get to meet the authors who, um, you know, the exact same authors that we are trying to reach from Ampersand, the authors who maybe aren't a part of the industry, who don't have an online profile, who are just working away on a manuscript that they think is pretty good, that they would have liked to read when they were a kid or a teenager. Um, Those are the writers that I'm trying to connect with. And if it takes, you know, an introvert going to a festival, um and and um and kind of making myself available to those riders, then I'm happy to do it um absolutely wouldn't give them up for the world and our team um do occasionally goes to those festivals as well um we usually send one or two people um or only get one or two people invited to things like the children's and y a yeah. conference in brisbane, for example um that's an invite festival but um but yeah, we do go around. we do enjoy them.
1: And are they? Are they? Do you sort of have any advice, like if if for authors who might see you at such events or attend pitching sessions?
2: Hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Good, good question. What advice would I give an author approaching? I think not to be say. nervous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm I'm actually happy to be pitched, but I do I do feel like there are. I think there are authors and writers who whip themselves into such a frenzy of anxiety about talking to publishers that it kind of makes it really difficult to just have a normal conversation with them. Mm. Um, and so I would, my advice to them would be that every, every editor agent publisher wants a writer to be as normal and lovely and, um, you know, as good, their best possible selves, basically. Um, there's no reason to be nervous. We're just humans. Um, and, you know, we likely haven't had enough coffee just like you. We likely didn't sleep so well the night before just like you. Um, we're often nervous about those conferences as well because you do, it is it is quite exposing, I think, to be talking to, you know, 40 people in a row mm. um, and having to give them rapid fire feedback in a way that is hopefully useful and encouraging but also honest. Mm. Um, so that takes, that, that can be quite kind of nerve wracking as well. So my advice to authors attending those festivals and conferences would be don't be nervous. We want you to be good. Um, We're happy to listen um, and and good luck, yeah.
1: Yeah, because I think it's important for authors to remember that you're looking, uh, as much as you're looking for fantastic manuscripts, you're also looking for people that you can work with, aren't you? That relationship is important too, isn't it?
2: Exactly, normal people who are not going to, <laughs> normal people, um, you know, I mean, I think that there is an argument to be made that writers are a special bunch and mm. that, you know, a certain amount of crazy comes with genius. I totally accept that and I love I love a bit of crazy with that genius, to be honest, but um, we do want someone who can have a conversation with us and can listen to us and can hear us when we give them feedback yeah. or push back against feedback that doesn't feel right to them. It's not a. It's not a kind of, Um, parent-child relationship, Mm. Um, it should ideally be a relationship of equals. Um, And that all starts with that initial conversation. If someone's kind of too anxious to even talk to you, um, it's sort of hard to see how you can turn that into a really fruitful author-editor relationship. Okay.
1: All right. So what are you Mm. actually looking for right now? What are you you Mm. searching for? What is the manuscript of your dreams right now, just in case one of our listeners is sitting on it at home?
2: <laughs> That's such a good question, um, Alison. <laughs> awesome, so many good questions. Uh, what am I looking for? Okay, so at the moment, I'm I'm actually really hungry for YA. I I feel like I'm not getting sent nearly enough YA, um, and so I'm really hoping that this year's ampersand um, prize has is just jam packed with fantastic YA manuscripts. I, I I still love contemporary. I feel like the trend for contemporary is waning a little bit. It's harder and harder to publish a good contemporary manuscript that's just good. These days we find that they really need a clear hook, something that helps them stand out, something that makes them special. Um, But I'm also finding myself drawn to manuscripts that combine elements of genre for a mainstream audience. So YA horror, YA um, uh, fantasy, um, particularly YA fantasy that's a little bit self-aware, a little bit self-deprecating, funny. I love humour. I think it's there's a real lack of humour in Australian YA publishing. I think we could all afford to kind of let loose a little, mm. um, and I also want books, both middle grade and YA, that are really fun. I feel like more 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 now than ever before, we need books that are fun and mm. give us a kind of escape um, route, basically. Um, and so, middle grade that is that combines fun with again elements of genre. I am we're pub- as I said, we're publishing uh, horror series in August called The Witching Hours with Jack Henselite this August and I love it because it is so scary and it has been the longest time since I read a truly scary but age-appropriate middle grade series
3: Um, and I've never
2: published one before so I'm excited to finally be getting to do that Um, but yeah and I think um, I'm also looking for kind of meatier stories for younger readers as well Um, We're finding this sort of strange trend in in retail at the moment. I don't know if it's trickled into publishing as well, but at retail, uh, retailers seem to be looking for longer stories for younger readers. There's a a real kind of link between the extent of a book, you know, the length of a book, and the the perceived value of it. So... um, so, you know, where before we might have said, you know, 7,000 words is the perfect length for a six or seven-year-old kid. Now, the you know, the average length might be more like 15 or 20,000 words. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that applies to every single story, but it's an interesting idea, I think, that readers want more value, more bang for their buck.
1: Okay. All right, so mm. we're going to finish up our lovely interview today with our usual last question, which is um, what mm. are your three top tips for aspiring authors, emerging writers? Oh,
2: <laughs> that, is, that is such a hard question. I well, the, um, the first tip would be enter the ampersand prize and actually <laughs> enter every every prize. Um, you know, the text prize is fantastic. Mm. Um uh you know, the Rochelle Prize, uh I think that's Hachette's right. Prize for Emerging Writers, they're not children specific, I think they're for adult, they might even only be for non-fiction, but these awards are basically publishers opening their doors and saying we want to find someone that we haven't worked with before and we really hope it's you. They want the manuscripts to be good. So that would be my number one tip. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number two tip would be to uh, really get to know the publishers that you want to be published by. Um so, you know, follow them on Twitter, take note of which books are coming out, look for them in bookstores, read their books, find out what their tastes are like, look in the acknowledgement pages, find out who published the book, and see if you can build a really specific um, idea of the kind of person whose taste, you know, the kind of person in publishing whose taste might align with the manuscript you're trying to write.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, because I think that is, that is the way, that is one good way to find the perfect home for your manuscript, Um, And also to save yourself a lot of heartache, sending manuscripts to publishers who just will never like it for personal reasons, not because it's not good, but just because it doesn't fit with what they're trying to do.
3: Um,
2: And it's a piece
3: of advice.
2: Yeah. um, I do it as well. I do it with other publishers. I'm always looking to see what they're publishing so that I can get to know, you know, their taste um, and keep an eye on the authors they're acquiring. Um, It's useful for me as well to know what's going on elsewhere in the market. Mm. And I guess the third tip is probably the tip that everybody gives, which is that they need to read a lot Mm. and read for the readership they're trying to publish for, but read outside of it as well. Don't restrict yourself to any one genre or category. Try to read as broadly as you can um, and try to read actively. Um, I, I, I divide my reading into two sort of styles. I have my work reading, which is a very active kind of reading where I'm paying close attention to every single word um, and every you know the flow and structure of every single sentence because I am I am interested in the technical aspects of how to make a good a book good how to make a story good, but I do have another kind of reading which is the the flow reading where you just kind of read to make pictures inside of your head and to be entertained and to go into new worlds. Um, I'm reading Terry Pratchett at the moment and that is my flow reading, mm. um, and it's it's awesome. But so you can do both. But to try you know if you're reading widely and broadly, be aware that sometimes you need to
1: do active reading to get the most out of it. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Marisa. That was uh, terrific. No, thank you. Um, So much great advice in there for all of our listeners. Um, So, of course, Marisa Pintado is the publisher of Children's and YA Fiction at Hardy Grant Egmont. She is encouraging you all to enter the Ampersand Prize, which is the annual search for YA and middle grade manuscripts, which opens when again?
2: It opened on the
1: 10th of July. Okay, so any minute now. So dust off those um, middle grade and YA manuscripts and get them ready to send on in. And um, Marisa, good luck with all that reading. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to need it. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed the interview. I'm Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, and I'm the internationally published best-selling author of two epic adventure series, The Mapmaker Chronicles and The Adaban Cipher. My books are available in Australia, the US, the UK, and other territories, and are perfect for young readers aged nine or older. Find out more about me and my books at allisontate.com. That's A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Inside Publishing, gives you a peek inside the complex world of publishing. Created by author of more than 30 books, Pamela Freeman, who also writes as Pamela Hart, the course gives you a step-by-step guide on everything you need to know about the publishing process and how this should affect your writing, pitching and submissions. It's essential information if you want to navigate the publishing world and get the best chance for your book's success. You'll learn about the copyright issues that will affect you, what territories you need to negotiate for, and how e-books and audiobooks will impact your income. You'll also discover whether indie publishing or traditional publishing is better for your goals. With our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months' access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash publishing. That's writercenter.com.au slash publishing. I love how Marissa says, read a lot and read for the readership that you're trying to get published for. It's common sense, right? And it's advice straight from the mouth of a publisher. If you don't know your genre and your readership, then how can you write for them? Marissa also talked a lot about her ampersand prize and how she looks to publish authors that have both fantastic manuscripts, but are also easy to work with. Make sure you enter all the prizes. But remember, if you want to get your book published, you need to be able to listen and take feedback. So a good relationship with your publisher is so important. You've been listening to Magic and Mayhem from the Australian Writers' Centre. And if you want to continue this journey with us and get support from an awesome writing community, then head on over to writerscentre.com.au and sign up to our free weekly newsletter. That's writerscentre.com.au. And trust me, the newsletter's gold. And if you hit reply, I'll definitely get your message.